Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I you, mama. Picture, if you will, dear listener, a scene. It is the summer of 2023, and a largely unknown author is traveling from Victoria, British Columbia, to a writing conference in San Antonio, Texas. The first leg of her journey having been completed by boat, which took her to Seattle, she has since boarded an Amtrak train, approximately 500,000 years in the past, and has been on this train for longer than the breadth of recorded human history. The landscape outside the window of her roomette is the same flat, anonymous, grayish-greenish, dry, brownish sage land the author has been looking at since the walking fish Tiktaalik ascended from the primordial waters and first began exploring the land. It's hot out, and the AC in her car isn't working very well, so she's slowly being roasted like a hash of winter vegetables inside a foil packet in the oven that is west or possibly central Texas. In order to not feel like a zoo animal confined to an exhibit, the author has pulled shut all the curtains on her compartment, interior and exterior, stripped down to her bra and underpants, and her middle-aged, thoroughly unsexy body is sweating profusely, as she does squats and toe lifts and generally throws herself around the closet-sized hot box of eternal torment just for the novelty of moving around. Uh, side note, I should actually mention here that I really love traveling by train. Like, seriously, it's my all-time favorite way to travel. If there is the option to get somewhere via train, I will take the train every single time over any other means, even though it takes way longer, because I just love everything about trains. I love their bigness, I love the sounds they make, I love their colors and the monikers and other weird outsider art that people paint on them, I love the rusty, bleak, industrial aesthetic of train yards, and most of all, I love Amtrak because everyone who works on those trains is consistently awesome and wonderful, and it's so cool to get to meet all the weird, interesting people you meet when traveling by train, and the food is really good. Amtrak has great food. And the scenery you get to see while taking the railroads, like, rather than, you know, the highways and freeways, is totally different from what you'll see with car travel. And via rail, you will traverse some of the most stunning, unforgettable landscapes in all of North America. I've taken many multi-day train journeys over the years. Paul and I try to go on a days-long train trip at least once a year just because we enjoy it so much. I have more Amtrak points than there are stars in the sky. But this particular scene, the one I'm having you imagine, with me in my underwear doing sweaty, sad, old lady desperation exercises in a very hot train compartment somewhere in Texas, this was not one of my best days on a train. 
I was desperate to keep myself from losing my mind that afternoon, evening? I honestly couldn't tell you what time it was. Once you get out past the part of Arizona where there are incredible ethereal forests of saguaro and yucca, the whole southwest just becomes so intensely boring to travel through. I know it's beautiful to live in, primarily because of the incredible skies, like Santa Fe is one of my favorite places in the whole world, but damn, is the southwest dull to travel across, my god. So I was losing my fucking mind in that train compartment and I needed something to keep me tethered to reality. And I noticed that my phone suddenly blossomed with five bars of signal out there in the middle of nowhere. And I decided I needed to act fast and download something entertaining to watch while I still had the chance. So I opened the YouTube app and frantic, dazed, partially severed already from consensus reality, I typed in the first thing that popped into my head, and for some reason, what popped into my sweaty, desperate head in that underwear-clad moment was... Fabio. Buongiorno. I'm Fabio. Yeah, that guy. The first hit I got on YouTube was a short, 35-minute film titled Fabio, A Time for Romance. I got the thing loading, I settled in to watch it, and my god, my life has never been the same from that day to this. And I'm going to take you on a journey with me into the arcane depths of Fabio, a time for romance, because I can. But trust me, you'll be glad. You'll be glad you went there. Because this film is like nothing else that exists on Earth, and I love it so, so much. It quickly catapulted itself from the life raft I clung to in a time of desperation to legit one of my very favorite things anyone has ever made. And everybody I've ever forced to watch this film with me has gone on to also adore it and spread it like the best kind of virus to all of their friends in turn. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. You know what that music means, future saints, my fellow curious weirdos. Before we get into Fabio, A Time for Romance, I want to take care of some quick business. First of all, speaking of trains, this is a good time to point out that I have a new novel out. It's called October in the Earth, and it's published under my Olivia Hawker pen name, and it's about lady train hobos in the Great Depression. And I put all my love of trains and train travel into that book, so I hope you'll check it out. And thank you to all of you who have read it so far and have been reviewing it so enthusiastically and recommending it on social media. That is so awesome to see. And honestly, seeing a new release do well again after two years of just brutal bad times as a writer is really wonderful, and it's refilling my sales. So thank you if you've already read and recommended October in the Earth. If you haven't yet checked it out, I hope you will. Speaking of two years of brutal bad times as a writer, I'm working hard to rebuild the independent side of my career so I don't need to rely on publishers for my income anymore. To that end, I'm creating some stuff that I am genuinely super stoked about and I'm really, really excited to see how these projects grow and develop over the next few years. 
taking my cue from some really cool and original writers whose work I adore and read daily like Chris Onstad and Maria Papava, I'm going to be building up a subscription or patron-based body of work that will be available exclusively to subscribers. This will include ongoing themed short fiction collections as well as some full-length novels that will only be available for subscribers to read and will not be sold in any other form with the exception of a single, very limited edition, Kickstarter-funded hardback print edition that will be a beautiful work of art and design in and of itself. And once that single run of hardbacks is produced, it will never be available in print again. So this subscriber and Kickstarter model I'll be building will be for true super fans of my work, and I hope you'll check it out once I get it up and running in the new year. Don't worry, I'm still going to be bringing out Olivia Hawker novels. There will be, for sure, at least three more of those through the fall of 2026, so Olivia isn't going anywhere, at least for now. I'm also going to be releasing all of my indie historical fiction from years ago as serial podcasts, one chapter a week, which you can certainly listen to for free, though again, there will be a benefit for folks who choose to support my work via subscription, in that Patreon or Substack supporters will have access to each of those audio novels all at once, so you won't have to wait a week to hear the next chapter, and you can binge the whole story if you want to. And for my supporters, those audio novels will also be ad-free. So that alone is a smoking deal for as little as five bucks a month, especially when you consider that I've already got more than five years worth of weekly episodes to release among all those indie novels, and I'm just gonna keep writing more stuff to bring out as podcast fiction. In fact, the original content will kick off early next year with Lark in a Black Country, which is my novel about Vincent Van Gogh, which I am tremendously proud of, and I think it's among the best books I've ever written. So, neither my Substack nor my Patreon have any subscriber-only content on them yet. I'm still getting my ducks in a row for all that, but I wanted to give my listeners a heads up first that it's coming soon. So y'all have now officially heard about it before any of my social media followers. You are OG, you're in the first wave, friends. And of course, once the content is up and ready to be enjoyed, I'll post about it on social media, so be sure you're following me on Instagram threads or TikTok, whichever one you hate the least, at the Libby Grant in all three places. Okay! On with the show. So, uh, here's something fun about being me. Like a lot of people who are really good at some form of art and also criminally underappreciated in their field, I have bipolar 2 disorder. There are two kinds, one and two, and they're differentiated mainly by the type of extremes they present. Bipolar 1 tends to have a more pronounced manic phase where you're really up and like super motivated and maybe seeing connections between things that aren't necessarily there, while the two version, the kind I have, involves a state called hypomania, which Honestly, just seems to me like uh, being in a normal, good, stable mood where you're working just fine and getting all your shit done and generally behaving like a normal, functional adult. But maybe you're also really creative at the same time. But what characterizes bipolar 2 is the extreme, severe, depressive episodes. Yay! Not a big surprise that I have this. Psychologists understand more about bipolar disorders now than they ever have in the past, but it's still like, not super well understood. But one of the few things that is very clear about it scientifically is that it has a very strong genetic component. It is heritable, perhaps strongly so, and lots of people in my family have either the one or the two version of bipolar disorder. 
My dad had such a severe case of version 1 that he was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic for many years of his life, which was pretty common back in the 90s and 2000s before research helped clarify the distinctions between schizoaffective disorders and bipolar disorders. Hold tight, I promise this all leads back to Fabio. I'm Fabio. Another of the few things that's well understood about bipolar 2 is that there's a really great medical treatment for it, which is lithium. In fact, some doctors think bipolar disorders might be closer to a nutritional deficiency than a nebulous illness of the mind because bringing up your lithium levels works so damn well to control bipolar 2. Unfortunately for me, there is one medication that is contraindicated with lithium, and it happens to be the only medication that has kept my hypertension under acceptable control. So I'm in the unenviable position of having to choose whether to treat my cardiovascular disease with a medication and control my depression through non-medical means, or whether to treat my depression with a medication and control my cardiovascular disease through non-medical means. As you can imagine, this sucks. <laughs> because how do you choose? Like, these are both serious medical conditions, both potentially fatal, and it's just a shitty, shitty position to be in to have to make that call. I decided that the marginally less terrible of two not good options was to take the heart med and treat my depressive episodes with a combination of therapy and extreme mindfulness, kind of becoming super aware of the minutiae of my moods so that I can spot a depressive episode coming and then take steps to get out in front of it and reduce its duration and its impact on the quality of my life. And I've actually gotten pretty good at doing this. Like, it's amazing. Once you know what you're dealing with when it comes to any kind of health issues, physical or mental, it's easier to be conscious of the changes going on in your body or in your mind so you can be more proactive and more effective in caring for yourself. So, for example, I've been able to pinpoint that I almost always hit a major depressive episode when I've finished writing a book. And I don't really know why, but I think that's probably because I have to sustain a certain level of creative energy while I'm working on the book, and that process goes on for, like, weeks or months, you know? Like, I have to make myself be on creatively for a sustained period of time without really any respite from that output of emotional intensity. And then when the book is finished, it's like I just fall into this pit of total emotional exhaustion. <laughs> so once we figured out that actually I'm bipolar, just like my dad was, but I got the extra juicy depression version of the disease, and once I realized that my worst episodes tend to happen after completing a writing project, now when I'm approaching the end of a writing project, I know that I need to step up all my mental health maintenance stuff significantly to like counteract the depression that's coming. Like I get way more exercise and I already exercise a lot daily. So I really go ham on moving my body when I'm about to finish a book. And I'm extra careful about what I eat. I meditate more. I start getting in touch with all my friends and family who are my support networks, who, you know, I know I can talk to when I start feeling really hopeless and miserable. And I just like tell them straight up, hey, I think another down period's coming, just a heads up. It sucks because I don't enjoy feeling like a burden to other people. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really any different from someone who has like a chronic physical illness telling their friends, hey, I'm having a flare-up and I might need more help than usual until I'm better. So, typically, I can see these episodes coming, and they tend to follow patterns, they're somewhat predictable, until they're not. And last week, after many weeks of chugging along productive and happy with no issues to speak of, 
I woke up on Tuesday morning in a full-on, violent, horrific depression. It came out of nowhere. It made no sense whatsoever with regards to my previous patterns of mood cycling. And it was bad, y'all. It was like I was hit by a Mack truck, and that truck was driven by a linebacker, and also the trailer of that Mack truck was filled with more linebackers, and they were all angry and hopped up on steroids and looking to smash really hard into the first thing they saw. And what they saw was me. Normally when I get hit hard, I just like take the day off. Just give myself a break, go do something outside of my usual routine. And that helps a lot. But that day I had a phone meeting with my publisher and y'all, it did not go great. <laughs> I mean, it, it went fine. We just talked about edits on my next book and some strategy stuff for the book after that and like where we're trying to get my career to go, even though it is never actually going to get there and we both kind of know it, but God bless my publisher. She's amazing and she keeps trying anyway. Although, you know, she did describe it as like pushing water uphill for a very long time. And I agree, that is exactly what it's like trying to break me out because the universe just doesn't want me to be a breakout author, I guess. But I was just an emotional wreck the entire time. I could not keep it together. I was trying. I was trying so, so hard because I hate crying around other people and I hate being unprofessional and it's definitely unprofessional to cry in a meeting. But like, that was all I could do that day. <laughs> Just cry over everything. <laughs> Things that no sane person would cry about and just like hate myself and everything about my life. Oh, uh, it was rough. And there's nothing you can really say in a situation like that. You know, I know we're all supposed to be enlightened 21st century humans now who are all about destigmatizing mental illness, but the hard fact is there's still a lot of stigma around mental illness. Like, if I had diabetes and I was a wreck at that meeting because I was struggling to get my blood sugar under control and it was fucking me up, I would have no problem saying that. But, you know, sorry, I have bipolar 2 and I woke up in the pits of actual hell for literally no reason just doesn't hit the same way. And people do judge you when they know you're dealing with a mental illness, even, even though they probably are too, but just haven't been diagnosed yet. I mean, like, I'm not sure how anyone can live in late-stage capitalism and not be mentally ill, but I digress. So anyway, uh, there I was, crying at my publisher over things I should not have been crying about, and getting more mortified and furious with myself by the second, and wishing I could just crawl under a rock and never emerge again until I turned into mummy dust and blew away on the wind. And I mean, I'm... I'm sure I'm not the only bipolar writer my publisher has ever dealt with. Like, bipolar is super common in the creative professions, uh, to a degree you probably would not believe. But it was still embarrassing and made me hate myself even harder, and I spent the next several days crying over the fact that I had cried in that meeting. And the really ridiculous part is that, like, to try to make me feel better, my publisher told me a story about how she had just cried in a situation that she didn't want to cry in, and then she cried more because she was crying, and that's, like, what I did <laughs> for days afterwards. Uh, 
And now it's five days later and I'm still so embarrassed about it all that when I realized it was time for me to put together another episode of this podcast, I was just like, fuck, no, I cannot be serious about anything right now. I don't have the mental capacity to like be deep and thought provoking and tease unexpected narrative threads out of seemingly disparate events that when woven together at the end, give my listeners a little dopamine hit of satisfaction. There is no dopamine left in me. It has fallen into the brain voids where the mineral lithium is supposed to be, and the dopamine is not coming out again until I've cycled all the way through this fucking hellish depressive episode, and I just have to hope to God it doesn't last as long as that time I spent an entire 12 months like this. But I need to make some content, because writing things for public consumption is my job. And that was when I remembered Fabio! Hi, I'm Fabio. So that, the longest preamble in the history of podcasts, was just my way of explaining that I ain't doing shit for this episode. And you know what? It's probably gonna be my best episode ever because of it. Because if I've learned one thing over the last 10 years, it's this. Uh, this is the way careers in the arts always work out. Always. You can put every ounce of your very best effort, every particle of what you've learned over a lifetime of intensive study of your art, every modicum of passion, every fragment of ability and skill that you have cultivated over countless years of work. And that finished product will be totally ignored. <laughs> See, The Prophet's Wife, my very best book by miles and miles, it's not even close, and also, my worst-selling book that nobody knows exists. And then the thing you bang out without giving a shit about it becomes super popular and it's the only thing anyone wants from you. Like, for example, that time when I was stoned and I said on a live stream for a different podcast that I was gonna write some Flatwoods monster erotica and the host of the podcast saw me say that in the chat and fucking called me out in front of the entire fandom. He was like, Libby's gonna write Flatwoods monster erotica. So then I had to. And that stupid, stupid monster porn story has been downloaded, I shit you not, more than a million times. Please kill me now. So yeah, welcome to the best episode ever of Future Saint of a New Era, the one where I'm just gonna rag on Fabio for the next 45 minutes or whatever. Before we begin, let me just encourage you all to please, please, for the love of God, please watch this film for yourself. I mean, probably after you've listened to this episode, though if you want to pause the episode and watch the movie first, that's cool too. I don't mind. And how would I know, anyway? I just really, really want all of you to experience Fabio A Time for Romance for yourselves, because it is like nothing else that exists, like nothing that has been committed to the medium of film. And it's free on YouTube. Go nuts. It's exactly 35 minutes and six seconds in length, and it is the most worthy half hour you will ever spend. I'm gonna walk you through the entire film, but it truly must be experienced firsthand to be believed. From the moment I first viewed this film, sweating in my underwear in a hot train compartment somewhere in Texas, I have been haunted by its mystery. 
There is virtually no information available online about Fabio, A Time for Romance, or why the hell it was even made in the first place. It was released in 1993, oh yeah, baby, straight to VHS, and it was produced by a company called Good Times Home Video, which mainly specialized in distributing international knockoffs of Disney films to the United States market. So a half hour Fabio feature was a little outside of the company's wheelhouse, but this is literally all I could find out about this film or the company that produced and distributed it. The rest of this film's existence is a mystery lost forever to the ages. What I speculate, just based on my knowledge of the publishing industry and how it works and how weird everyone inside of it is, is that Fabio, A Time for Romance, was probably created as some kind of bonus or incentive product, uh, either by Avon, which was the company that published Fabio's first romance novel, yes, Fabio wrote romances, or by William Gottlieb of William Morris Agency, who was Fabio's literary agent. Now, Fabio had been a model for a few years by that time and rose to stardom when one of his modeling pictures was used on the cover of a Joanna Lindsay novel. And he quickly became this weird icon of the late 80s and early 90s. And his image, to quote a riff from Mystery Science Theater 3000, his tan, taut, muffiny chest, was synonymous during that era with the genre of romance fiction. In 1993, Gottlieb ramped up selling Fabio himself, not just as an author of romance novels, the first of which was called Pirate, and you'll understand the connection forthwith, but selling other Fabio products too, like a pinup calendar and a truly exceptional studio album called Fabio After Dark, which is basically a bunch of generic smooth jazz with Fabio narrating some very tame PG-rated sexual fantasies over the top of it. It's incredible. I highly recommend that you track it down and give it a listen the next time you need a little pick-me-up. I like to take a special lady to a cinema where we can hold hands in the dark and whisper very quietly about what we see. I wonder, will she kiss me like that? Will I always be the hero of her life? I wish there were more romantic films, because romantic films can lead to beautiful adventures after we leave the theater. Uh, oh, also worth noting, after Pirate, his first novel, Fabio went on to write several more, though notably, those were actually ghostwritten by Eugenia Riley. So I guess Fabio is maybe not the best writer in the world. But guess what? He's still a better known author than I am, and I guarantee you, he got way higher advances for all his direct than I'll ever get for anything I write. So, let's do it, folks. Let's dive, our naked bosoms heaving, into Fabio, a time for romance.
It opens with a montage of sepia-toned scenes over a sparkly purple background. In these scenes, our protagonist, a blonde woman somewhere in her early 40s, gazes in horny trepidation at the imposing figure of Fabio, he of the slabbed body and mighty jaw. Suddenly, Fabio is making out with some other woman, and then the shimmering gold title materializes on this purple screen, Fabio, A Time for Romance. Fabio himself takes the screen, wearing a white linen sport coat with no shirt underneath. His golden locks tumble past the trapezius muscles that slope like the foothills of majestic mountains to his broad Italian neck. He informs us that he's pleased. Pleased we decided to spend some time with him. So pleased you decided to spend some time with me. This program was created as a very special gift for all my friends. Please, come with me to the world of romance where every woman's fantasy can come true. Okay, don't mind if I do. I mean, every woman's fantasy? Even that fantasy I have where I'm the first indie author to win the Pulitzer Prize and Jonathan Franzen gets so mad about it that blood shoots out of his eyes like he's a horned toad? There's this very long scene where this music you're hearing right now, this minor key nightmare that feels like it's what Danny Elfman would write <laughs> if he were in the midst of a bipolar depressive disorder. This music plays over way too thorough of an establishing shot that lets you know we are in the domain of a writer. How do we know we're dealing with a writer? I'm glad you asked. We see the following items. First blurred, then in excruciating close-up. Tiny bottles of something that may or may not be lithium. The nib of a fountain pen. The carriage return bar of an old-timey typewriter. The wrinkled and discarded page of a manuscript because, as everybody knows, most of what writers do is wrinkle up dissatisfying pages of manuscripts and litter them about the room. A box of Kleenex and some water, because as I have already established for you, writers cry, like, constantly, so we need to stay hydrated. The keys of an old-timey typewriter. A votive candle unlit, with a half-typed manuscript page wilting out of the typewriter in the background. Approximately one quarter of Fabio's headshot, mostly covered by other assorted documents, his seductive, hawk-like eye watching us, suggestively. The same manuscript page, but from a different angle. A carved wooden statue of a man and a woman making out, because you gotta have some inspiration in your office, folks. And then, we pan over to a bed with two people in it. One turned away from the camera, the other, the blonde, middle-aged gal we saw in the opening sequence. She picks up her clock to look at the time. It's a sleepless night, possibly because five days ago she cried like an idiot in a meeting with her publisher, and she's still not over it. She gets out of bed, and we cut to a new scene where she wanders into what I assume is her writing office, the ceilings of which are approximately 20,000 feet high. She's got a container of some midnight snack in her hands and is grazing from it. I have seen this film many times by now, and I still can't figure out what she's supposed to be eating. It's like little white squares of something, and I think maybe it's supposed to represent cheesecake, but there's no crust to it. It just looks like bricks of tofu. 
I love tofu. I literally, this is not a joke. I eat tofu at least once a day, frequently more often than that. But what the fuck? You don't just fork it up in brick form and nosh on it in the middle of the night. Tofu takes finessing to make it delicious. It takes seduction, like Fabio seducing an innocent grade school teacher. The author tears her manuscript page from the typewriter, glances at it for half a second, then wrinkles it up and tosses it on the ground, which is exactly how I start each of my daily writing sessions, too. She returns to her tofu, then pauses, retrieves the discarded page, smooths it out. Maybe it contained a good idea after all. She gathers a few writer supplies and retreats to the big, comfy-looking oversized chair in her office, where she and her tofu settle in to work out the problem she's having with her manuscript. At this point, and I love this so much, she picks up an 8x10 glossy photo of Fabio with his waxed, gleaming chest prominently displayed, and she says, Maybe I should use him as the hero of my next book. And for the briefest moment, just for a heartbeat, there's this shot where you can see she has an entire coffee table piled with pictures of Fabio. Lady, what are you doing with all these pictures of this one man if you're not already planning to use him as the hero of your next book? Then she mutters about how she can't decide what time period to use, so okay, she's an author of historical romances. And then she utters this immortal line. My editor expects something today. Okay, because writing novels is also my job, I know that what she has to turn into her editor today is a proposal. So like, a brief overview of what this book is going to be about and how long it'll be and all that stuff. But if you don't know how publishing works from the inside, you would have no reason to believe that this writer is going to do anything but attempt to draft an entire novel in approximately six hours. Because the proposal thing is never explained. From here on out, it literally feels like this writer character is trying to write an entire novel before lunchtime. We have all been guilty, at one time or another, of procrastination. But this, this, my friends, truly takes procrastination to a whole new and incredible level. I've gotta come up with an idea. Girl smoke weed. Then she muses on the possibilities of a Viking romance. As she begins to assemble the plot in her head, the camera crossfades back and forth between the writer and the hulking silhouette of Fabio creeping through a misty forest. Yeah, a Viking. I open with him heading toward a particular castle. A particular castle. I love that line. Fabio stands proud and blonde in the big wooden canoe while a guy in the absolute most hilarious stereotypical Viking getup of all time paddles. This guy, not Fabio, the other guy, looks incredible. He does look like a Viking, doesn't he? I mean, he sure does, if historical inaccuracy is what you're going for. He has a huge horned helmet on and a big fur cape, and he's propelling this canoe with the longest... It's like... It's like if you stuck one end of a kayak paddle into a black hole and it spaghettified and became, like, several light years long. That's the size of this paddle. He might decide to go ashore alone 
because he wants to avoid unnecessary bloodshed. Ah, yes. The Vikings were famous for avoiding unnecessary bloodshed. <laughs> Fabio lurks through the forest, jumps over a fallen tree, and comes across a scrawny teenage boy sword fighting against no one in a clearing. I am so amused by the dialogue and all the, like, wimpy boy grunts in this scene. Barbarian is no match for an English lord. <coughs> anyway, the boy starts hot-dogging and his sword goes flying off across the meadow and Fabio reveals himself in all his latissimus dorsi glory. That is a big sword. To such a small boy. The boy dives for his sword, but what we're really supposed to be looking at here is Fabio's butt, which definitely is hogging the limelight. Anyway, this dumb kid just starts sword fighting Fabio, who's approximately six times his size. I guess kudos to little Lord Skinny Britches for being brave. Viking Fabio tells him to put down his sword because he has no taste for the blood of children, but Skinny Britches shall not surrender. Fabio disarms him with a swipe of his broadsword and the kid runs across the clearing to catch his sword, turns back to face where Fabio was standing maybe two seconds ago, and Fabio is gone. He then instantly reappears behind little Lord Skinny Britch's back, like 180 degrees from where he'd just been standing. Dude, Viking Fabio can bi-locate. He has conquered space-time. Fabio is a secret chief of the Third Order, I guess. So Fabio and his butt finally decide to kill this kid, and just as he swings his mighty viking blade, a fair maiden in a green dress with far too low-cut a bodice throws herself out of nowhere in front of Fabio's sword. If you must shed blood this day, then let it be mine. He watches in mild confusion as this woman pleads for the life of little Lord Skinny Britches, who is apparently her younger brother, and offers to die in his place. Skinny Britches and Maid Skinny Britches argue for a while about which of them gets to die, until finally, the woman picks up her brother's sword and tries to fight Fabio herself, which lasts about three seconds before he disarms her too. Fabio makes the woman kneel, and then spends an uncomfortable amount of time probing at her cleavage with the tip of his... sword, and then tells her brother to go get a Christian priest. The brother thinks Fabio is going to allow his sister to have the sacrament of last rites before he murders her, but no. Viking Fabio has other plans. He would perform a marriage. Just as Maid Skinny Britches looks up in horror, we cut to the writer violently crossing out her notes on the legal pad. She says there are too many Viking books this year. I actually think this sounds like a really dope opening for a story. I think she should have gone with it, but you know, who am I? If you are worried about there being a flooded market for your topic, then might I suggest writing about UFOs instead, milady? It's such an unusual topic in fiction that it took me two entire hours to find comps for my Roswell novel. You know, my editor has a real thing for pirates. She pensively eats some tofu as the pirate idea strikes her. She begins to narrate her idea. Pirate ship employed by Queen Elizabeth is chasing a Spanish galleon. When a storm hits, the pirate ship suffers extensive damage, but the other vessel, believed to be carrying gold, sinks near an island in the Caribbean. 
the captain would probably set up camp on the beach. And as she's saying all this, crossfade to Fabio and his nipple, who together are writing something with an ostrich quill pen. Has been given orders to repair the ship. We pan away from Fabio's laborious letter writing and see that the setting is a beach at sunset. Pirate Fabio has cobbled together some hinky-ass tent out of sails and ship parts, and his crew of assorted rowdies are gathered around the driftwood fire. I don't know where Central Casting found these pirate guys, but damn. No notes. They are all perfect. I mean, listen to this dude. <laughs> so I says to the wench, I says, get your ass over here and lift your skirts high before I find somewhere else to bury me ivory treasure. <laughs> and then something amazing happens. Two of the pirates start getting all up in each other's faces and they palpably want to kiss each other. And fair dues, like actually homosexuality was super common among pirates, but gayness was never positively represented in 90s media, so that's not where the director was going here. And yet it reads so sexual as these pirates, chest to chest, their lips practically touching, sneer intensely at one another over how horny they are. Like they're talking about how the whole crew just wants to fuck and how it's weird that Captain Fabio is apparently not horny. So I guess Captain Fabio is an asexual pirate and his lack of attention to the procurement of wenches is causing some real issues among his crew. May your soul be blasted to eternal damnation and may your eyeballs grow hairs. Anyway, one of the pirates spots a fortuitous wench washing ashore in the waves just then, and they pick her up and take her to Captain Fabio's weird half-tent, even though she's covered in seaweed and stinks. The pirates chase her around a bit, and Fabio, who's now wearing a shirt where moments ago he was totally bare from the waist up, snatches her up with one arm and then just lets her go again, and she runs around screaming and then swears she would rather be thrown back into the sea than suffer ravishment at the hands of villainous pirates. Believe me, madam, no one wishes to ravish you. Yeah, because the captain's asexual and the crew is all gay. So Fabio tells his dudes to take her off to be washed with soap, I wasn't aware that pirates were big on hygiene, and she spits a few curses at him, and he says when she comes back, he's going to make her go without dinar until her manners improve. Later that night, Fabio sits wistfully gazing at his own sword by torchlight, now wearing an entirely different shirt, albeit one that still shows off his bare muscular chest. His favorite crewman tells him that dinner is ready, and the wench is in his tent. The crewman asks what he wants with that woman anyway, and Fabio says, she sounds educated, and if he could just tame her, she might be interesting to talk to. Also, the crewman has burned her seaweed-covered clothes and given her something else to wear, which is just kind of like a random loose smocky thing with no sleeves. So when Fabio and his two incredible pecs saunter into the tent, she says she must insist he find her something more appropriate to wear, and he agrees, then picks up one of his pirate chests, saying, I must have something that a woman can use. Boy, does he ever. Uh, he very quickly finds two lacy, frilly garments and forces her to say please and thank you before he hands them over. So I guess Captain Fabio is like Captain Shakespeare from Stardust. You know what? Good on him. 
The eye patch guy brings in dinner, which includes a whole rotisserie chicken. I'm not sure where the shipwrecked pirate crew is getting chickens from, but okay. The woman reappears wearing her fancy pirate frills and Fabio invites her to share his dinner. And then as soon as she sits down, he pulls the food away again like a total asshole because he's really on this weird manners kink and he wants to force her to say please and thank you before he'll let her eat. Ugh. Rather than subject herself to this emotional abuse, she starts to leave before Captain Fabio reminds her that his crew of randy gay sailors will assault her if she goes out there without his protection. Then he yells at her to sit in the chair again so he can continue toying with her. Like, for real. She is as shipwrecked as you are, dude. What is with this weird grudge against her? Anyway, that one famous violin piece starts playing, you know, the one that always gets played when a filmmaker needs to convey sophistication, and Fabio eats a bunch of chicken in front of her like a dick. They argue for a while about what a useless piece of shit pirate Fabio is, and to be fair, he does sound like one, and then she gives in and says thank you for your protection, and then just lays into this chicken with a vengeance, eating it like an absolute barbarian, and I love it. And then Fabio asks her, if she plays chess and Pocklebell's cannon in D starts playing while they have a chess match on a beach after being shipwrecked. But this isn't just any game of chess. Oh no. It involves Fabio, so it's sexy chess. They smile at one another over the chessboard. Fabio makes several moves that are not legal in the game. He turns his chiseled head this way and that. And this all goes on for an excruciatingly long time until finally, the shipwrecked woman's cold heart melts under the blazing torch of Fabio's radiant sex appeal. He leans across the chessboard to kiss her, but she stops him. What does a gentleman say when he wants something from a lady? Please. I mean, at least she got the last word. And man, they are going at it. This chess game really turned them both on, I guess. Whatever floats your boat, man. Personally, I prefer checkers. That is a really good possibility. I don't know, Ryder Lady. It would have played well in the 90s for sure, but it'd be a hard sell in 2023. But you know what sells nowadays in romance? Contemporary, with a real twist at the end. I'd love to write something contemporary, with a real twist at the end. Or have you considered paranormal romance? A lot of people are intrigued by the supernatural nowadays. Boy howdy, I managed to sell a historical novel with a fucking UFO in it. But you know what they say, write what you know. Maybe your best bet is to write something from the heart. Something based on your real-life romantic musings. I do have a secret fantasy. I wouldn't mind acting out. Crossfade to an Italian villa with high-arched porticos, as seen in the opening credits sepia-tone. Our protagonist, the blonde romance novelist, exits the villa through a wrought iron gate, dressed in the most early 90s satin gown of all time. Like the main character in a Bonnie Tyler music video, she crossfades over herself again and again as she advances across this dreamlike scape. 
Then we see her sneaking up behind Fabio, who leans pensively over the railing of a balcony, wearing a white tuxedo with a black bow tie and black trousers. This truly amazing dialogue follows. This all seems so unreal to me. It's hard to believe I'm here. Why so hard to believe? Why is it so hard to believe? Don't you read your own news clippings? Your account, one of the handsomest, wealthiest, most sought after men in the world. Don't you read your own news clippings? Your account who's so hot, newspapers write articles about how hot and rich you are and how badly everybody wants to bang you? God, I love this film so much. Just look at where you live. It's like something out of a fairy tale. Real people don't live in 500-year-old villas in Italy. Real people don't... (laughs) Now look at me. Look at her. Closely. Uh Uh-huh. I may be all dressed up like a princess to fit the picture. Girl, you look like Alexis Carrington Colby had a black and white nightmare. But inside... I'm still a plain, ordinary grade school teacher. (laughs) She's a plain, ordinary grade school teacher who has somehow ended up in a 500-year-old Italian villa with a count so hot the newspapers write articles about how hot he is. My my depression is cured. (laughs) She goes on to talk about how this weekend has been amazing. No mention of how she ended up in this unlikely situation, but she's going back home tomorrow, presumably to the States since she's got an American accent, and next month she'll read about him in the society page. So, Count Fabio of the white tux jacket and black trousers is so fucking hot that American society pages will write about him. Holy shit. Fabio is truly the hard, throbbing, gravitational well around which the universe turns. Fabio says some sexy Italian stuff to her. Ti amo. I love you. And begs her to stay with him because he is truly in love with her. Just listen to me. I'm a real man. With real feeling and emptiness inside. Forget all these words. Just listen to your heart. He swears that if she leaves tomorrow, it will break his heart. He cannot live a life without her. But she says, eventually he'll get sick of her because she's just a simple grade school teacher. She can't turn her back on that security for all this fucking money of his. She has principles, damn it. To convince her that his love is as eternal as his jaw is strong, he proposes on the spot. Just marry me. Just be my countess, my lover. Kathleen, the simple grade school teacher in the satin gown, gazes at him in wonder. No word on why she thinks he won't just, like, cheat on her and divorce her if he's really this playboy who's written up in international society pages. And they share the most slow-motion kiss of all time, while the music swells to a crescendo. Fabio lifts her in his mighty arms and carries her back into the villa, and the excessively long train of her gown is definitely a tripping hazard, and I got nervous watching this scene.
Back in the writer's office, it's all the way morning now, and she wakes up on her cozy oversized chair. Oh shit! She fell asleep, and she still hasn't written that entire manuscript she needed to finish before lunchtime. <laughs> uh, she looks startled, gets up. Someone has left a huge pink rose on her desk. Are you ready for the incredible twist ending to Fabio, A Time for Romance? Brace yourselves, because shit's about to get real. She turns away from her desk. Who are you? There he stands, in full color now, but still in the same white tux jacket and black pants. He fixes her with a stern, commanding gaze, his virile musk permeating the room. Looking in helpless astonishment at his own hands, he says, I don't know. I don't seem to have a name. He remarks that he dresses well, though, which, with his weird piebald tuxedo, I would beg to differ, and thanks her for that. Then he pulls the elastic from his hair and shakes out his leonine mane. This is more my style. I don't understand. How did you get in here? I don't know. The last thing I remember, I was carrying you through some doors of an Italian villa. It's a shame you woke up. Wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to tell me that you're the man in my dream? A figment of my imagination? I guess so. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Yes, that's right. Her horniness for Fabio was so powerful that she manifested him into existence. If this is what it's supposed to be like to be a novelist, somebody please explain to me why the 1978 incarnation of Mark Knopfler hasn't yet appeared in my office while I've been crying at my desk because the vigilance is going to be another masterpiece that the whole fucking world ignores. The protagonist declares that this is ridiculous and commands herself to wake up again. Fabio thinks this is a great idea, they should go back to the dream in the villa because she wasn't afraid of him then. And then, this incredible exchange of dialogue occurs. You weren't afraid of me then. Of course I wasn't afraid of you then. I made you up. No, you didn't. You saw me in a movie when you were 14. You've been dreaming of me ever since. Maybe... I got it. The dream maker decide to make your wish come true. The dream maker? Yeah. Who or what is the dream maker and how does it make dreams come true? Don't know. It is never addressed again. Put it out of your head. Okay. Let's say, just for a moment, that a figment of my imagination has come to life. What on earth am I gonna do with you? Fabio watches her with a very suggestive expression on his chainsaw-sculpted face, then says, Anything. Absolutely anything your heart desires. She looks amused, and then looks like she's going to start crying for no good reason, which is how you know she is definitely a writer. And then she wakes up for real on her big cozy chair. She's all happy now, which means she has successfully cycled out of her depressive episode. Congratulations, ma'am, and Godspeed. And then she cheerfully says she's going to go get some sleep and maybe something will come to her. Awfully laissez-faire about your deadline in approximately four hours, but okay. She returns to her bed and brace yourselves, dear listeners, because this masterpiece of modern cinema has a second twist ending. 
As our protagonist climbs back into her bed, she seductively apologizes for waking her bedmate and purrs. It's all my hero's fault. I just can't decide what to do with it. An unseen man with an Italian accent says, Maybe I can help. While he slides the strap of her nightgown off her shoulder, we see the gold wedding band on his finger. Yes, my friends, she was married to Fabio all this time. What do you have in mind? Anything. Anything your heart desires. Okay, look. Here's the funny thing. I mean, all of this is funny, but what's extra funny to me is that my husband Paul actually has this incredible long thick. I'm talking about his hair. His hair. Long, thick blonde hair exactly like Fabio's and though my sleep is often disturbed by my stresses about my job not once have any of my career problems been solved by sex like Paul has never banged a good proposal idea into me but you know I'm not averse to trying it the credits take an excruciatingly long time to roll over this generic sexy sax jam but I do learn via these credits that the guy in the amazing Viking costume who is paddling Fabio's canoe with the longest kayak paddle in the history of seafaring is named Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and that's just so funny to me. Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old Billy alone! Oh, God. <laughs> and perhaps the very best part of this incomparable journey through cinematic history is that after the credits are over, there are a full two minutes and four seconds of black screen and weird discordant tone. <sighs> That's it, my friends. That is Fabio, A Time for Romance, and it's everything I needed. That's literally all I have for the show today. I ain't doing shit now. I'm going to go smoke some weed and lie flat on my back in the living room, listening to Dire Straits and thinking about Mark Knopfler from 1978. I guess I'll be in your ear holes again in a couple weeks from now when hopefully I'll be less depressed, but no promises because you know what it's like when you're living that professional novelist life. It's all raw dogging your mental illness while you eat tofu straight out of the package and hallucinate visions of Fabio. Don't ever let anybody tell you it's not a glamorous life. Cheers. That's it. That's the show. And I'm either so sorry I inflicted that upon you or I'm very glad I did. Choose whichever one works for you. I'll be back on December 6th, I think, with a fresh new episode. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, take a minute to rate and review, since that carries the algorithm through the doors of my Italian villa and helps me find more curious weirdos like you. I would love to see this podcast continue to grow, so if you've been enjoying Future Saint of a New Era, tell a friend! Nothing helps creators find their audience quite like recommendations 
from one person to another, and I would love it if you'd do me a solid and spread the word. Music included Telstar by The Tornadoes, licensed through Lick.co, and Night Drive by Shane Ivers. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels, Count Smokula, Urban Smooth, Elijah M, and Technica Productions. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds, my lover.